welcome back to the Skullcast for episode... Oh, crap, what are we? 23, yeah. So, yeah. I was a little delayed because I was making pancakes, which you probably don't even realize, but these two over here are a little upset that they don't have pancakes. So, <laughs> they're a little cranky. Yes, you can deal with their crankiness. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. the show an edge. <laughs> so, um, we're coming back from a new episode week. We had episode 332 land on our laps, and... The biggest surprise, of course, was they did Some not... old friends, the well, trolls yeah. are back. Trolls are back, that's what it was. The big highlight was the trolls are back. <laughs> yep. Some old favorites, some old favorite characters returned. I thought we were done with the trolls of the ring saga. Yeah, but it returns. So, um, yeah, just like the Hobbit. Yeah, I probably shouldn't say that too sarcastically. People probably don't realize I'm just joking. <laughs> this yeah. is such an old joke at this point. Um, the big surprise for me was, you know, I, I, I snagged the preview early. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to have a picture of uh, Skellig at the, on the horizon. I'm like, nope. Here's a shot of Rickard. And I was like, oh, well, that's cool, too. <laughs> no, it was funny because you, you sent me – you sent us the preview via email, and it was like you wrote in there, called it. And, you know, I was like, oh, my God, ah. it's it's the island. And, you know, I click on it, and then it's like I see, you know, Rickard and everything. And I'm like, is this – is this Skellig? <laughs> yeah, he drove his like horse and buggy over to, over the uh, you know Western Sea to get the Skellig. Yeah. But it was um, it was it was kind of exciting because I mean I, I kind of just wish they'd reach the island milestone before they transition. I'm sure everyone's pretty much sharing that sentiment right now, but it's hard to be upset with all the cool stuff that happens in this episode. You know, he really, uh, first of all, we can see Rickard and Eric after it's been like 10 volumes, no, 12 volumes since we last saw them. Kind of crazy. Do you think he's grown up a little bit or is it just me? Yeah, uh, he's probably grown up a little bit. Yeah. He, he, doesn't show, I, he doesn't show too much, but he ought to be, you know? Yeah. I, I thought he looked like he grew up a little bit. The problem is Erica looks like the same. It's like a yeah. childhood stasis, basically. It's kind of weird. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, we see them in a caravan of people, and, and one thing I didn't notice until later, and Azil said, "Why didn't you notice this?" was the fact that it's a, it's a huge caravan, and they're in the back of it, and so they're defending this massive caravan full of people, uh, and they're the last line of defense against these you know magical creatures that are chasing them. But um, yeah, and what's, what was really cool to, to me about this episode was seeing the varying abilities. Not you know we we knew what to expect with trolls, and then a cockatrice lands. And it has this like uh, breath ability, and that really makes me excited to see how everything else is going to play out. You know, all this so many different. It just opens the door for you know wide range of uh, conflicts and battles that might happen in the future. Of course, we knew to expect that after the fight with the Kelpie and everything, but it's just cool seeing that you know constantly expanding the scope of what to expect uh, in battles. Well, yeah. you you skipped over my first. Uh crazy favorite sort of odd thing that popped up in this episode, which was Rickert's, like, bow and arrow machine gun, <laughs> like the super yeah. version of what's on Gut's arm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was one of my first thoughts as well, was, you know, he's using his machinery to adapt to this new world, which is, yeah. I wonder if that'll play out in the future as well, like, he'll become Falconius, like, chief magical expert, you know, magical creature defense, you know, guy. More like an engineering, you know, expert, yeah. I guess. Right, right. But of course, that brings up the big question with the, introducing Rickard with the Falcons, which, you know, kind of had to expect. You, you know, Erica and him are on the mainland still, so obviously they're going to come into, you know, other magical creatures. And the question, of course, is where do they go from there? Does Rickard go into Falconia knowing what he knows? 
And that's something I'm really excited to see the answer to. I mean, I, I think we we can pretty much deduce it right now. And he's going to yeah. carry, but I think he has to go in Falconia. I mean, for for a variety of reasons. First of all, for it's probably the only safe haven around because everyone's prepared for it. Yeah. The second I mean, part is yeah. narratively, it just makes sense. It clicks. Yeah, he- it's awesome narratively. <laughs> it's going to be uh, pretty great. And also – it's just one of those situations where I'm sure we're going to see him going in and sort of wondering. You know, he's not going to have much of a choice. It's going to just be, you know, why wouldn't, why don't you want to go in, you know? Yeah. And he'll be like, uh, you know, he won't be able to really explain it and he'll just sort of, you know, before he knows it, he'll be there and he'll be, and he'll be curious too. Yeah. And yeah, as a fact, the caravan itself, I mean, they're all going to be, all right, yeah, let, let's go get there because, you know, I mean, otherwise they would have been dead. They were, they were going to die, you know, so, you know, the caravan's going to be there and he'll just have to follow. Right. Yeah. And I wonder, um, the way this episode's presented, is you know humans versus magical creatures? I wonder how widespread that is. Is it going? To, is that is that going to be the hardline stance for um, for all humans and all magical creatures? They're the enemy, basically. They're going to all be exploited uh, and defended against. I'm I don't not think sure. so. I'm, not I'm sure. sure that this is widespread, like that. There's magical creatures, you know, attacking human cities everywhere. But I'm sure there's also like friendly creatures mm. in the same. Yeah. Way. Maybe there's some alliances. And I think, uh, what we saw with, uh, you know, Inoku was a bit, uh, how to say, it was an example of what could be. Like we saw the people they had, you know, forgotten about, you know, the lady of the death who was dwelling there. But in some old villages, much like the people on the solitary island remember the sea god, you know, from old. Uh, I think some people are going to remember that long ago their great great grandfather used to do so and so and, you know, Following this line of thought, I think some people, specifically in uh, rural places, you know, isolated villages, are going to be able to, you know, remember old alliances and uh, use these to fight back in a way against pests like trolls and such, because that's essentially what they are, you know, like wild animals, wild beasts. Mm. Yeah, I, I just, I, I just feel like it's it's possible there could be like a kind of almost a racist or a speciesist. You know, movement. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I I said so in the thread. So yeah, of course, I think so as well. Specifically, I think it's it might be, it might very well be, the Falconian, you know, line of thought. Like yeah. what they're going to say is, these you know creatures are all evil. Mm. We are going to exterminate them, and it's the rise of human power. Like we are going yeah. to dominate the world, and yeah, it might be you know misguided. I mean, purposely misguiding people. In that regard, but I still think some people won't fall for it. You know, people who are specifically isolated, not close to Falconia and to the reach of the Falcons, because of course it's always easier when you have soldiers, you know, with a commander that come and do the work for you. It's easier than to have to rely on your own, you know, means. But uh, yeah, I think we'll see a bit of both in short. I I think the line in the sand is probably. I mean, the easiest one is elves. Like, if they're, you know, crushing elves and stuff, you know that there's something, you know, wicked going on. <laughs> God. Yeah. It's like, we need to exterminate all these creatures, you know, like, you know, they just start smashing them. That, that'll that be, like, a signal for everyone. You know, even Ricker, you know, will see it and be like, hey, wait a minute. Oh, yeah. Well, Despite Eric, his elf phobia. Erica, too. She's yeah. Fond of elves. Yeah, I wonder how she'll respond to all this. I don't think she was there. No, she wasn't there for the explanation with Guts about what happened at the no. end. So... 
But, you know, she, I think she was always pretty candid. So she'll be able to tell instinctively that, you know, apostles are, you know, bad, you know, sure. they're, they're just not good. And, uh, yeah. yeah, in the same way that I think Rickert might be, you know, I mean, he'll know. Even though, you know, they are all playing nice and such, he'll know. They are apostles. They are the ones that did this and such. And so I think he'll be worried regardless of what happens. Mm. We'll see. Uh, I wonder. Let's see. I always uh, I forget if did he ever see Zod in human form? I don't think so. Mm. Yeah, he did. He he saw. Oh him yeah, on, that's right. He saw them fighting. That's right. I was yeah. trying to remember. And then then he he was like, "Who's this guy?" And then he yeah, transformed. Then, like, Fuck it, Zod. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, I was right. trying to remember how he knew Zod before that. So okay, yeah, he did know him just as the Minotaur, but now he knows both forms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Pretty so much. that'll be uh, that'll be awkward. <laughs> you know when he sees <laughs> when he sees him again. Do you think is go ahead, sorry, Griff. No, I was just gonna say, like, sort of, you know, we're not transitioning yet, but getting to his meeting his eventual meeting with Griffith that we're assuming is gonna happen. Yeah. It, do you think Griffith will attempt to give, you know, an his side of the story at all? No. Or if he's just gonna leave it at, you know, like, Oh, you're welcome to stay here and by the way, and then he like looks him in the eyes and zaps him with some charisma, you know, <laughs> like you know, I'm not even sure he'll be meeting Griffiths, like, personally. You know, now he's a big, you know, huge, you know, god, you know, king of the of the place. So is Rickard even going to meet him? I mean, to me, it's not a given at all. He might see uh, him from far or such, but I'm not sure they'll be having a chat or anything like that. I can I can see that it would be interesting for him to be isolated from him and to just see him, like, yeah, from afar and what he's become. And, like, he'd pro- on some level, he would be, like, you know, obviously, like, proud because this was their this was their dream, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, and he knew, he knows that, but, you know, it would be interesting. But I, I still feel like Griffith, Griffith would want to connect with him. Yeah. I, I just because, you know, that's part of his whole, like, you know, great guy, <laughs> you know, routine. And plus, he's he, like, oh, he, it's my old friend. He extended an offer to Rickard even back in volume 22. So, I mean, yeah, he was making him. him, yeah, he was making us, you know, giving him an opportunity. So I don't think he would, you know, change his mind and, and say, I'm not talking to you or, you know. No, but that's, well, that's the thing. I think it just means like he'll be like, he'll just be like elsewhere in Rickard. Will this be another among many in the city? Well, that, yeah. that, bring, that brings up a good point I was going to ask about earlier was, do you think, uh, uh, I think it was Owen that recognized Guts. As a former member of the Falcons, yeah. do you think anyone else will recognize Rickard? I mean, I tend to think, think no. Like, here's the thing: Raban yeah. is Raban is right there. He's right in front of him and didn't say anything, yeah. or maybe he will or will not say anything. Uh, Rickard was never on the front lines next to Gut or Griffith, you know. So, actually, yeah. hmm? that's that's actually, but that makes it more likely that he would like, you know, br- actually bring him up and maybe like, you know, sort of present him to the city in a sense. Hmm. Like, you know, this is a, another hero of, you know. Of mine, you know, an old comrade. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think he would do it just because, again, you know, it would be it would be nice to see them, you know, meet and talk, and also because it's like it just goes with Griffiths, you know, like you know, going to the camp and eating, you know, Charlotte's sweet cakes and everything else, you know, kissing babies, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. As a politician, he just sort of, I don't know, he always does those, you know, those dramatic, magnanimous gestures. Yeah. Where you know it just makes him, you know, seem likable. Right. Well, I mean, I, we're going on a break in the next episode, but I, I think this is what's going to set the tone or, or the, the story arc for this particular thing is Rickard's. I think I hope it's Rickard's journey uh, to Falconia, and, and I hope may, maybe it'll end when he get, gets there before they enter the wall, the doors. Apparently, I guess would be the way thematically to do that. 
Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be necessarily a very big journey, you know? Yeah. So... For all I know, for all for all we know, they're really close by. I mean... Yeah, make- it, it might be... It might go either way. They might be very close or they might be yeah. far, but you know, we won't see the journey because, you know, once they're with the soldiers, what's going to happen, you know? Like, they can talk, but it's not like they're in real danger anymore, sure. so... When, when I said journey, I really just meant, like, two or three episodes. I didn't mean, like, a whole... Yeah. You know, I thought you meant it's going to be like the same length as the trip to Elf. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, Mira used this, you know, little break to the mainland to, you know, it's a convenient way to pass the time between when the Meros start guiding, you know, Gats and Co to the to Elf mm-hmm. you know, so and when they arrive. So I think a few episodes is uh, is likely. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm thinking two or three, but as we'll get to, my predictions on length are pretty off sometimes. <clears throat> anyway, uh, fun episode. We didn't say we didn't mention Irvine the whole time, and he had a pretty dramatic appearance. Uh, as I was doing the transcription, I mean, Azil pretty much said everything that needed to be said as far as dialogue's concerned in this episode. But uh, Irvine does have a little cool moment where he says, "You know, the, the cockatrice after he trans, trans, uh, transforms, the cockatrice is my prey. I will not miss." <laughs> pretty cool, dramatic line from Irvine and his uh, crazy-looking hair. Did not expect them to have. Look yeah, I was not expecting that. That yeah. would be like if a giant afro had popped out or something. <laughs> <laughs> off. I was like, whoa. Yeah. I did not know yet. I always assumed he was blonde, probably because yeah. of the. Did he have that on the back of his hat before, or is that a new hat? I think that's no, a new hat. I think a, that's a new hat, but I always assumed he had blonde hair. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I, I never really thought about it, really. Yeah. Well, but, I think it's pretty cool, actually. I like his hairstyle. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's just again, all you see, you picture him with the hat on. Without the hat, he looks dramatically yeah. different. So he looks very stylish without yeah. the hat on. It made me wonder how old he how old he was. Of course, it doesn't really matter. He's an apostle, but he, he struck he struck me as very young. But I don't know. I should have known. We should have known he had black hair though, just from his transformation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Which is still weird looking to me. Not in a bad way. I don't mind it. It's just you know, it is like. When you look at the back of him, he's got like a giant beast penis. Oh, essentially. Really? Oh, oh, yeah. You mean his form? Sure, sure. Well, that's yeah. Weird looking centaur, basically. In- yeah. Inverted centaur. Well, uh, is there more to share on three thirty two? Let's see. Are we? Are we? Are we decided that it's a uh, Raven? Uh, I don't or know. We... I mean, <clears throat> it looks like him, and it makes sense. I mean, here's the thing. If it was just a random leader, it wouldn't give so many close panels to him, in my opinion. You know, it, it really puts it right up there. Uh, and the fact that he's in a commanding position and resembles Raban, that's just my thought. But it can really be anybody, you know? Yeah, it could. It doesn't have to be. But uh, it would just be neat if it were, if it were him. Yeah. So it's the more interesting possibility than just a random guy. So that's what I'm leaning towards right now. So Yeah, yeah. pretty much. His armor is pretty nice, too. Like just looking at that on uh, one of the early pages, yeah, where they show it like his horse and everything. It's pretty fancy. So yeah, yeah, I took note of that as well, and I was actually trying to compare it to earlier armor Kid War to to no avail. Yeah. To no avail. <laughs> you know, there's also one thing is that if it's Raban, it's already a commentary of on what's going on. You know, yeah, absolutely. Because he's part of the band of the Falcon now. He's a commander of the band of the Falcon. He used to be a, a noble. A, of Midland, you know, so he had his own armies and such, 
And uh, now he's just a captain among Griffith's armies. So I guess it's, you know, it's a, it's a commentary on what's going on. Griffith is a, you know, master. And there's no more Midland or anything. There's just, you know, the band of the Falcon. They are all over and all of them are submitted to the Lord. Yeah, they actually, the old old men kind of go through that. Whenever they first see the forces, they say, is that uh, the Midland army? And the guy says, no, that's the Griffith's Falcons, basically. Yeah. And so... Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It is, it is a commentary on what's going on, and it's exciting to think about that because you know it, it, mean, it means shit's already gone down in Falconia. The new world order has already started, as far as the organization's concerned. Yeah, uh, you know they've already issued orders to go around and either either protect humans or bring humans back in. You know, we don't know that yet, but it makes sense that they would bring humans back in. Yeah, well, yeah, it's interesting. We don't know where the caravan was headed, whether it was Falconia or somewhere else, and uh, what the soldiers were doing, but yeah, it would make sense. Yeah, well, the fact that the guys had to explain to him who these forces were made it seem to me like maybe Falconia wasn't their destination, but I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Still kind of speculative right there. Yeah. Exciting to see where that goes. I think the next episode, I mean, we keep saying this, you know, it seems like the next episode or the next couple of <laughs> will spell out the direction for the series. You know, we keep we keep waiting for that milestone to be reached and we're not there yet. We're still very foggy about where things are headed big picture wise, you know. And I feel like we're on the cusp of it on both sets of the storylines, you know. We're just not there yet. So Yeah, but I think it's going to take a, a while before it's really sure. I mean, yeah, we're on the edge, but uh, you know, it's going to take a while, I think. So by next episode, we're not going to know the God Hands plans is what you're saying? Yeah. Well, that's so hey, for all we know, that could be the focus of the next episode. Yeah, <laughs> just transition there. We're going to see human void oh, <laughs> with a big brain. Yeah. <laughs> that represents void. Yeah, yep. I was going to say that being <laughs> said, Mira, yeah, Mira did say we would, you know, see more of the good end, you know. So it might not be too far off. Then again, if he says we'll see more of them, it could really just mean like, you know, one episode in the future because it's like, it's not like they show up that often. Yeah. Well, the thing is, he said, uh, you remember he said we would see them, you know, soon enough, but it was yeah. like, oh, for me soon, you know, might not be like soon. So yeah, I went over that again recently and it's a little sad how, uh, we expected so much from that line and really he just said, yeah, you'll see him. <laughs> Well, bad. yeah, I, I, I do think it will be, you know, soon enough, though. Sure. Maybe next year. Yeah. So, yeah, it will be exciting, I'm sure. Cool. Well, we'll go on to the next topic. Um, <clears throat> where we left off with Griffith was pretty much right before his fall, as I recall. I and mean, then we kind of went over all, all over the place. And But timeline-wise, I think we stopped around. We didn't, we didn't really talk about his jail sequence, for example, or his imprisonment. Uh, his talk with the king, all that stuff, and, and moving forward. So I figure that's a good enough place to start. Um, but one thing I noticed when I was – I listened to the last episode again. And one thing I noticed that we talked about, but we still had so much more we could talk about, was the relationship between Guts and Griffith. Uh, it, it seems to me like that's, that, that becomes more and more important as this, as from where we left off, from the point where Guts leaves or you know makes his point to leave the Falcons – Suddenly, Guts becomes super important to Griffith. You know, he realizes how important he was now that he's no longer there. And and he starts analyzing his relationship with with Guts while he's imprisoned. And it, it made me wonder a little bit about how important uh, friends were to Griffith and how maybe he didn't realize how important they were. 
conversely, it also made me think about Griffith's decision to basically shed his humanity and his weakness with, with guts to become this super being with no weaknesses. You know, go ahead. I was just going to say, there's also one thing about the time he's uh, reminiscing while in jail is that, you know, he, he just fucked up big time. So yeah, sure. He's thinking about guts and, you know, homing for it was and such, but you know, it's because had he not, you know, fucked up like that, uh, you know, in the first place, I don't think it, it would have been that big of a deal to him eventually. So it's once again, you know, the beauty of constantly in a way because, you know, Griffith overacted, you know, on the spot. It got him into trouble and then he had time to, you know, obsess over it because that's what led to him fucking up, you know, right after. But, uh, you know, my point is that before that, Gus might not have been that big of a deal to him. But when he refused to let him go, when all this chain of event, you know, unleashed, it might have made him reconsider, you know, the whole situation and relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm possibilities where you know what ifs but uh the one thing i kind of disagree with that i'm gonna go out on yeah. a limb here because you know and as i'll start sawing the branch but <laughs> and but uh yeah i i think it's i think he really you know did care and i think he was just real i mean he just had time to sort of realize that and sort of analyze why he acted the way he did well i, don't think I agree sort of i agree he cared my point is more like you know, he put, what to say, he, he, he cared. He would have gone over it if he had, if he hadn't, you know. Yeah, right yeah. Away. My, my point is, the relationship was important to him, of course, and Guts was important for, you know, in many ways. But, you know, the fact he failed, you know, that's why he obsessed over it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. his, his failure, you know, made him, you know, put even more importance to, you know, the relationship and guts and everything and these events than, you know, he had in the first place. So it's not like he... Yeah, well, yeah go ahead. No, I was just say that's interesting because, uh, you know, obviously, like, that's probably one of the more revealing, like, one of the few times we get to go inside Griffith's head is that scene and where yeah. he's remembering yeah. his childhood. And obviously, guts in the castle are compared to, like, the trinkets he would win as a boy. Yep, and how at, by the end of it, guts you know shines brighter than the castle. Yeah. So you're saying yeah. you think that's just because guts is now the focus of his sort of his downfall? Yeah, in, get the castle? yeah. I I think that's part of it. Yeah, I think in a way the fact you know guts you know contributed to his downfall makes him so important. You know, like while he's in jail, that's it's, it's pretty much the only thing he can think of anymore. You know, like it actually, he said it keeps him, it kept him sane. It was yeah. basically his sustenance for maintaining his identity while he was down there for a year. Was focusing on guts. Yeah, um, makes us wonder how sane he was across the whole year. Yeah, um, yeah pretty much. Me keep my sanity. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, I think I, I think, yeah, I, I, think I, I don't know. I don't. I think it's discounting how important. I mean, the thing was, he realized he, whenever, uh, Gus left, he was wondering, basically, why is this, why did this damage me so much? And he didn't quite understand it. Even after he's with, with Charlotte, you know, he doesn't say anything, but he focuses on that defeat and it, it, it wounds him. And he, he probably doesn't understand why. And even in the jail, he's wondering, why is this person so important to me? And he's missing the obvious, you know, that he was, uh, he cared for him, but he doesn't know when that transition happened. You know, it happened uh, on the fly, basically. But the, the the bigger point I was trying to make was the way Griffith sees friends or guts in particular is basically ultimately after the eclipse, 
he, he viewed it as an impediment to his dream, his goal. And then, you know, focusing on human and, and friendship made him weak and made him forget his goal. Yeah. And to, to me, that's not dissimilar with the way beast, the beast taunts guts with, you know, destroying uh, his friends, you know, unchaining, uh, the, the things that bind him to get him well, to what he wants. Yeah. The beast actually often, you know, I mean, he- at first, when it first appears, he tells him, you know, do it like him, you know. Yeah, like, you can become a com- monster like him, he says. Yeah, it, it compares the thing. So, yeah, it, it's a self-destructive, you know, instinct. I mean, that's part of what the beast is. And he also says, you know, it'll be just like that time at the eclipse when you couldn't save your friends. Yeah. Whenever he finally, you know, cuts loose, basically. But it made me think of um what the beast is to Guts and what Femto is to Griffith. And that's something Griffith always likes to talk about, for sure. Is it not? Yeah, it would be uh, it would be interesting to see uh, like sort of Femto appear to Griffith like the Beast, except that he is he already is Femto. Sure, he already he already gave into that. But uh, yeah, I mean it's an interesting uh, comparison and parallel that we you know it's never been. I don't think it's ever been directly like uh, no you know, no done. But it's just something you can sort of extrapolate. You know, looking how yeah just things work in Berserk, but. Yeah. Going back to, you know, Griffith in, uh, in prison, I do think, like, I don't think it was just, you know, oh, as wasn't saying that either, but I do think that, you know, my sort of default interpretation of that scene is that he was realizing just how important Guts was to him. It's not just sort of, it's not sort of a chicken and the egg thing because he messed up because of how he felt about Guts. Guts became more important. I think he was real. I do think he was realizing how important he was to him and that he actually did care about him more than he cared about his dream at that point, and that's why he messed up. Yeah. And that, you know, he was still sort of feeling that way and, you know, going into that and exploring it. I tend to agree. That's, the, I mean, I, I recently read through those for this episode, and that's, that's also what I came away with was that he he didn't realize how important Guts was until he started focusing on it. Uh, I don't necessarily think that he was misled or anything like that. I don't I don't know. It makes sense to me. Maybe we're getting a little confused ourselves talking about it this way. Yeah. But uh, I did have a couple other notes on and how this is portrayed, uh, the childhood in particular. You know, one thing, Guts and Casca get really elaborate, well, more elaborate childhood backstories. And with Griffith, we get basically a scenario or a scene or a vision of him in the back alleys of this, you know, castle town and then looking up at this castle in the distance. Now, Yeah, and it's you know, almost a scene that's representative of like yes. not even a specific event but like sort of just his daily life. It's figurative. It's the way yeah. I, you know, but what is interesting is, you know, Mira reiterates the whole light and darkness thing. The the area of town that he's in is described as uh the back alleys of taverns and brothels and a place where the sun never shines and he looks up and he sees the castle, you know, shining, you know, in the sky basically. And darkness and light, of course, if you look through the series, it's all over the place, you know, particularly with the way, uh, with the Falcon of Light and Darkness. Do I, I don't even need to say this. It's a, it's a recurring theme of the series. Uh, Ganeshka, look at Femto. Yeah. With the way the pontiff even explains his divine revelation was that his, his life was in darkness. He always wanted to have, uh, divine revelation and live in the light. All, all, all sorts of stuff. It's all over the series. But it's it's interesting how early Miura, you know, uh, hammers that point home. Uh, and, you know, <clears throat> throughout the time, I think we already discussed that Guts is the one that kept him sustained and kept his mind slipping into nothingness. But uh, 
during his his imprisonment, he gets this little uh, visit from creatures in the walls. For a while, I wasn't exactly sure what they were, but it, it seems clear to me that it's an appendage of the vortex, the way it's a conglomeration of beings. They're all kind of mashed up and together like that. What did you guys think of that? Yeah, they look like, you know, the vortex. Yeah, it was, if you want to have a more like, I guess a more like sort of mundane explanation could be it's some sort of like ghosty slime. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's still obviously, you know, very, very well connected ghosty slime because it, you know, gives him some very important information and, you know, sort of opens up that, you know, segues into that vision of, uh, of the God hand and you know, what may be the vortex at the back. Actually, I think it's just white in the background at that moment. The, well, what we see is the, when you see their silhouettes, the Escher type, you know, looking design where yeah, multiple different levels and stuff. Yeah. Which is interesting because uh, that's the, uh, a direct reference to obviously, you know, vo- you know how they look in volume three and we don't ever see them like that. Again, but it's interesting at that point because that would have been, you know, pretty much everyone's only frame of reference. Is the God Hand dimension basically? Is the- yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you know, since we hadn't seen Volume Thirteen yet, that would have been that would have, that's obviously a pretty. It's interesting just to sort of reverse engineer that in your mind. Sure. I don't. I don't necessarily think we're supposed to know what this creature is, but it, its design is consistent with the vortex, and that's what makes it makes me think it's part of it. But, uh, yeah, well, it it just, I, yeah, it just looks like some sort of evil, yeah. you know, creature. Like, you know, yeah, it's like it, it's not even so important what it is, just as <clears throat> that you understand what it represents, what it's an envoy of. Yeah. Yeah. While he's imprisoned, uh, he's pretty much naked except for the helmet or the the fashion helmet for him. Why do you think Miura chose to keep that design element on? And I don't, I don't just mean why the torturer chose. I mean, narratively, why does it make sense? Why, why do you guys think that choice was made for him to be represented not as a man, but as, as the, you know, the Falcon at that point with that? Helmet? Well, you know, for one thing, it's a reference to, you know, there's a famous French, uh, you know, story about, you know, a guy who was the twin of the king or the real king and he was kept with uh, an iron mask on, you know. Yeah. In jail for so I think it's a reference to that, but I also think uh, you know it makes sense to just you know hide his face, you know, keeping you know keep him in the dark. And as far as you know, for the reader himself, you know themselves, it's a, I mean, it's a clear reference to Griffiths. So I think it was pretty cool to reverse that, like you know, the Falcon symbol was uh, his power, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it becomes you know part of his shackles. Right. That's- yeah, it's like mocking. Yeah. <clears throat> when Guts. So- Go ahead. It also allows us to, you know, Mura makes it clear that Griffiths uh, is disfigured, you know, pretty badly. But we are not shown it. You know, Mura said before, and I talked about it in the previous uh, podcast, that he wanted Griffiths to look very pure and such. So it's a way, an easy way to, you know, make him disfigured. And, you know, like he's not beautiful or anything anymore, but not to show it. So to us, he's still the same, you know, in a way. But... When judo and you know, guards look at him, they are horrified by what they see. Yeah, so. yeah, that's exactly what I was going to talk about next. Was they took his mask off, and we don't see it, of course, but they're shocked. The thing is, you see features on his face throughout the. And estate. he looks, he looks pretty good. Yeah, actually, when- I mean, for example, he still has his, his lips are intact. 
His nose is still there. His eyes have not been horribly changed because you can see the outline of them several times. So the it question looks is, like there's some soot on his face, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean he has all his major features, but the the torturer does talk about peeling away the skin on his face to yeah. see the, the vessels underneath. So we can presume that, was, that. Go ahead. I think to to Az's point. Sorry if I'm uh, interrupting yours. Did you have? Somewhere. You're no, going. that's it. I was just saying. Oh, you know, it, it clearly. Had I think. To- I think the point was to keep it so that you know that way Mira could have the seed in our head that he's disfigured, but without having you know without actually making changing our view of Griffith. Mm. Yeah. You know, so that we imagine some dis- you know like without actually showing like like he's a zombie yeah. looking guy or something you know because that would yeah. sort of that'd be a little distracting. Yeah. <laughs> like it's 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 interesting the way it works. It's actually sort of you know I don't want to say brilliant but it's very clever yeah absolutely. Like, uh, a very clever thing so uh that's what i think that device is all about and why because yeah you still see that it's him and you can still sort of think of him the same way yeah but yeah it's without actually having to be so literal mm. yeah and you you also a good point to make in regards to what you were saying earlier walter is that uh, his face is always kept in the dark you know right like it's uh it's dark and so it, it's a uh, it shows also his decline, you know. It's another indication that he's, uh, yeah, yeah, he's gone. Hmm. Well, whenever Guts and everyone rescue him, one of the first things he does, obviously, has his tendons removed, but he puts his he puts his hand on Guts' throat. Yeah, which was <laughs> super creepy. I remember being creeped out at the time because you know oh, they're here to rescue him and. His first instinct is to grab Guts' throat. And, of course, he's he's overcome with different emotions too, which he says earlier in the volume. You yeah. know, it's not just friendship or, or anger. It's all, it's all mixed together. So I think at the time he's, you know, flooded with different emotions himself, which is why he it's might go for throat. Even if his tendons were intact, you know, if he was just fully healthy and he tried to grab Guts by the throat, <laughs> that yeah. might have been a much worse situation for him. But uh, well, even if even if he did, it was misinterpreted as an embrace, you know. Which yeah, I, yeah. Well, I, not by uh, not by judo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Immediately yeah. saw and you know <laughs> recognized, like, or at least he uh, he, he the idea into his head. I don't know if he dismissed it. Probably. But, he seems to have. He certainly doesn't focus on it later on. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't mention it again. But then again, he's a very uh, he's a sensitive yeah. fellow. I mean, he knows he, not to. Yeah, he's considerate. Yeah, yeah. And very quickly in their escape, uh, Griffith begins to notice that Guts and Casca have drawn closer, and I think that hit him on multiple levels. On, on for one, these two characters who used to be under his control were now living basically their own lives away from him and they'd grown and evolved. In yeah. addition in addition to that, Casca, who was always so devoted to Griffith, is now sharing her affections with somebody else. And it's not that, you know, he had affection for Casca in that way, but it's that she always it, had it for him, you know. She was yeah. yeah, she was his sword and it's been taken, you know, yeah. by Guts. And also Guts is, you know, obviously who we had this great affection for, now Casca has him. So it's just a double whammy. Yeah. yeah. He's like, yeah, he's jealous. He's jealous of both of on, you know, that both of them are with other people and they happen to be with each other. Oh yeah. I yeah. think of that double it's, jealousy. Yeah. It's even worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much the worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah. During the escape, um, he obviously has his tongue removed, but what's interesting, he, he does communicate and does kind of assist in his rescue on, on two things. I don't think I noticed the second one until later, but he has this big moment with Charlotte where he mouths to her words that we don't know at the time 
but you find out later that he's he, Charlotte believes that he was telling her that he will return. I think it's uh I don't remember what the Japanese for it was. Okairi? I don't remember what that is. That's welcome home. I don't know. But there's a Japanese word that makes sense phonetically if you look at the lips. <clears throat> and of course Charlotte reiterates it herself, so but here's the thing. Why why would he bother to tell that to her? Is he still chasing his dream at that point? Is he still trying yeah, to leave I think up? I think at that point he still is. You know, it's it's only when uh he during the escape, you know, when he tries to leave the sword and he notices his you know, his arms can't even, you know, walk properly and when Wild uh humiliates him in front of everybody, I think that's when he really snaps. At first at the time into the tunnel and such, he still's got uh, some some you know fight some fire into him. So that's why he helps uh, Pippin, you know, showing showing him uh, there's you know the, uh, some light, you know, so he he can use the hole to prevent their death and and so on. Yeah. I think that at that point he still got some hope into him. And why uh, uh, is really what breaks him? Right. It's almost like just you know like he's running on instinct. You know, they rescue him and it's like oh you know I'm back in command. You know, it's like I'm gonna. You know, we're going to rebuild, we're, we're escaping, he's helping, you know, he's seeing things and making, you know, people aware of it, but it's only like, and you know, he even has moments, like they put the armor back on him and like him and Guts actually share, you know, it wasn't all, yeah. it's not all attempted strangulation, you know, they smile oh, at each other. I mean, yeah, he's, and, he's uh, he smiles I, on multiple occasions. Throughout yeah. The yeah, and you know, he looks like he's, you know, he's, he's obviously, you know, happy that they rescued him beyond just being rescued. I mean, he's happy to be back with them, you know, and to see them, yeah. and, you know, there's, I, I there's see, you know, these sort of, you know, yeah, bittersweet moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I was going to say? I think he's almost regaining some of his sanity, you know, as, yeah. as he progresses, he's getting better and better and back into his old self, you know, before yeah. he became a bit, uh, how to say delirious. And, uh, but yeah, it's broken, you know, it's broken with wild. It's like he had some, he still had some spark in him. You know, of his yeah. old self, his humanity sort of came back into him, you know, for that brief period, you know, when they were, you know, I remember when they put the flowers in his hand and, you know, he sees the city as they're riding away. Yeah. And, you know, it's all, it's all sort of, you know, it's very romantic. And yeah, it falls apart, you know, basically when Wild, Wild will do that. He gets rid of any romantic notions. He's sort of good for, <laughs> it's a good purpose for him. Yeah. He served his purpose well. Yeah, the ugly, he's, he's the ugliness of reality. Hmm. I, I've never we'll, – we'll, we'll get to that, but I, I don't necessarily think it was Weald that drove him to the, that, that desperation. I think that – Well, I mean the, the situation. OK. Yeah. Like when he, you know, yeah. He's trying you – know, he, you know, he's trying to take the sword out at first and mm-hmm. Guts tells him, you know, just to be patient. You know, we're going to – we're going to make you better and everything. And then, you know, obviously he wants to help in the wild situation, you know, when wild is attacking and guts and Casca are in danger. And, you know, you see him, he's, he's straining to, you know, do anything, you know, and his two, the two guards is too, like, they've been assigned basically to protect him. Yeah. He's straining against them and, you know, he starts bleeding from the mouth. I mean, he's so fragile. Yeah. That, you know, it just becomes apparent that he's, you know, worthless, you know, and then wild drives that point home. And, you know, maybe he would have been fine over time or at least better, like his vision that he has, like sort of best case scenario. But even that, you know, it's like he's being waited on hand and foot, like, you know, almost out of obligation and charity by Casca. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that he knows that, you know, she would do that for him. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, this you know, that's not it's what a, he ever wanted. Yeah, it's not what he wants. It's it's even more 
another humiliation, you know, added on top of the rest, you know, all all of it. Yeah. So the fact he can't, you know, help them, he can't save them, it, it must be extremely frustrating. And I also think the part where Wilde just, you know, takes his broken body and just, you know, removes the armor and shows to everybody that he's broken beyond repair. I think that that's, you know, really, really, you know, is a breaking point. You know, it's also what broke a lot of them. I mean, Kirkus just breaks his sword after that. And that's a very symbolic gesture. You know, he breaks his sword... The fight is over. It's you know all of it is over. They can never rebuild. There can never be a, a band of the Falcon anymore. Yeah. Although I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. This is. I mean, it's silly to you know get into this, but I mean, I do think it's like you know he could have just been the brains of the operation, and they could have you know kept it going that way. But obviously, yeah. for Griffith's purposes. You know, it, he doesn't want to be, you know, like that. I mean, it would. Yeah, it's I don't. It's just not what he wanted. You know, he could have yeah. been. Yeah, there could have always been something, but it's not. But what they he they never could have been what they were. They would have had to be some like thieves, you know, group or something. I mean, it would have been something very low. I like how yeah. that's that's the first thing Judo suggests is like, well, what are we gonna do for no longer an army? Ah, thievery. You know, just like it's kind of random, but. Well, I, guess. I don't know. I mean, I think that's what they were. I think that's what they were pretty much into before. I mean, they were thieves. Yeah. Oh, you know, sure, sure. Anyway, yeah. so, and I think that's just sort of that's all they. And plus, they're outlaws already. Yeah. So there's that's there's true. really nothing else well, they could they could do. You know, we could start a clothing is, shop in another country. Like, <laughs> yeah. The thing is, somebody like Judo, you know, it fits his character. He was ready yeah. to move on, and to he didn't mind. I mean, he wouldn't have minded being small time. Like, yeah. oh well, yeah. you know, one's gotta live, but. Somebody like Griffiths, yeah, but yeah, Griffiths just couldn't, you know, uh, that's not his character, and so, yeah. Right. That's also why he became Femto, I mean, all of it, his his ambition, his desire for greatness, that's that's a a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Another interesting insight in his, like, his projection, his dream that he has of his, you know, the, the future he could have with Casca is that, you know, he knows that Guts would leave again. That, you know, Guts would be gone. Guts would, you know, obviously go off and just, you know. I feel like if Guts' life, you know, it wouldn't have changed so much if there hadn't been, an, you know, an eclipse. He would still be out wandering, fighting people. <laughs> Maybe, you know, apostles if they were out, you know, if you could find them out in the world. Because it's just, that's just his nature mm-hmm. to, you know, do that, to wander and, you know, fight. So it's interesting that he knew that it's not like Guts would hang around and, you know, support him and be friends with him at Casca or anything, that he would lose him. There's, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, to me, it's like, it's hard, it's hard to think about possibilities when the eclipse with everything was so perfectly structured around that event, you know, that was, that was kind of a distracting comment. Yeah. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> you know, I didn't... The, uh, in volume 11, there's one little cool little scene that I, I don't think I'd, I've thought about in this context before, but, as they're leaving, you know, the outskirts of Wyndham, it's right before they get to the farm where they're helped out by those random people. They get Griffith has this, this final view of Wyndham, like the outside of uh, the castle walls, and from that vantage point, it's not dissimilar to uh, when Ganeshka is there and he Griffith finally arrives back on the scene. You get the same view of Wyndham for, uh, as he arrives back on you know the country in his new form, which is kind of a neat little return. I, I had not considered that before. As he was leaving Wyndham the first time, he thought he'd never be able to, you know, the whole purpose of the scene was saying he's leaving and never coming back. And of course he yeah, comes back goodbye. with a, you know, whole new army and force and body and everything. So something cool to think about. Um, 
one of the things, <clears throat> one of the misconceptions I think with as we get to the eclipse is because everything in the causality is structured like gears set into motion that are, it's moving forward inevitably, you know, I think it's a little misleading that to think it's like a ticking clock because it's not there. There are still decisions and choices that are made to make those things fall into place. And whenever you look at the Bahira, you know, the, the, the idea is that the, because Griffith tried to kill them, kill himself, that the Bahira was going to activate, but actually it's not until guts reaches him. And it's that moment of tension between yeah. when Guts is running to him. It's when he touches his shoulder. Exactly. You know, and yeah. there's that there's that line that Griffith says. I always forget the full line, so I hope one of you remember. <laughs> but uh, I'll, if you if you bear me up on your shoulder, I'll never again be able to. And then there's an ellipsis. Now, that's how I gave you. Is that what that what the full line was? Yes. I forgot because in the original YA it had the full line, and then the, the volume they changed it to just an ellipse. So that was strange. But anyway. Yeah, and it's the, a, the full volume it changed to what you said? In the full volume, I thought it just goes into an ellipse. I, yeah, it's an ellipse. Yeah, well, I was just I didn't mind the change, but uh, because it, in any case, it's the same result, and I think it's pretty evocative. The point is that Griffiths didn't want their pity, didn't want you know, and he didn't want God's friendship either. He, what he wanted was to be you know a ruler, to be you know the best, and uh, yeah, I mean that was his dream, and so yeah, he'd be that, with- that situation. He was being faced with the end of his dream. Yeah, that, that situation was not acceptable to him. So, I mean, it's, it's the same thing like the dream with Casca, and you know, it's a, it's a nightmare for him, and uh, I mean, rightly so. So, yeah. But it's that moment when Guts touch, touches him that the bigger is set, you know activates and sets him up even to the eclipse. It's not like that was you know, <laughs> Guts sort of makes it happen. You know, in a way. Yeah, of course. Well, well yeah, that cause... was the yeah, that's the inciting incident, sort of like his moment, his lowest, you know, mm-hmm. moment. I guess when he's crying out for help, mm-hmm. it's like get me out of here, you know, basically. And uh, the whale got him answer. Right. Yeah, and yeah, guts was the corner, you know, stone of uh, femto's ascent. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it's guts. You know, out Griffiths in many ways to you know gain. You know. Traction and became more and more powerful until he became like you know the main general of Midland's army, and uh, Guts was also what you know plunged Griffiths into darkness as he just you know did something stupid after being defeated, and uh, by him, and uh, yeah, it's also Guts who yeah Guts is a cornerstone of the whole thing, of course. Also, I mean, he also reassures Griffith that we talked about last time. Whenever his you know uh, motivations or morals were waiting. You know, God sets him back on his path saying, yeah, that's all right. You know, you're still, you're still good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is like replayed yep. for uh, Griffith at the, at the eclipse. Yep. What's interesting about that scene when he, you know, touches him and everything, you know, he's telling him to stay away from him, you know, sort of desperately. Yeah. I feel like I've always felt like part of that. And maybe, you know, this is off, you know, it's like sort of was that Griffith intuitively knew that if Guts, you know, came to him, like, he sort of knew what was happening, like, he didn't know what was happening, you know, but he just had a feeling, you know, he knew that, you know, yeah. he knew that if Guts, you know, was a part of this, then also that Guts would be, you know, dead. Like, I and that they would, you know, that there'd be, there'd also, there'd be no way for, uh, for them to reconnect on any sort of, you know, meaningful level, like, even if he did, you know, regain his form. And, I mean, obviously, he didn't have that stuff in his head. But, like I said, just intuitively, he knew that this would be the end of the... I, 
I think he was uh, he was at a breaking point, and um, to him to have guts come and such a thing, it was like, you know, like it says in the original, like he couldn't forgive him anymore. I think at that point, guts had become sort of like his arrival to him, you know, not not anymore friend, but real arrival, like maybe even his arch enemy, you know. I mean, the man who took everything from him and that kind of stuff, you know, that year in prison where he focused on guts, you know, endlessly. I think. It really changed his perspective uh, in a way that was that couldn't be undone, you know, even after being saved by them. So, mm. to me, at that point, he knows that if guts just, you know, touches him, that's when their friendship is over, and like he can't, he, he just couldn't take it anymore mentally. So, and of course, that's what also brings about the eclipse. So, yeah. Yeah. it's a marvel. Of, it's a marvel of engineering, I, I would say. I mean. Like right at the moment when he just can't bear it anymore, that's when they ask him to sacrifice. Yeah. Before we get into that, I did, there's there's one more thing I wanted to talk about. I missed it when we were talking earlier. But what sets Griffith off on writing out on his own is that he overhears Casca relating to Guts about that scene on the stairs. And it's at that point that Griffith realizes that wow, he heard my fucking conversation. Shit. You know. I, I, I had not I had not actually thought about the implications of that until the recent reread. Obviously, he's upset that they're basically talking about him basically pitying him that's the context or that's the subtext of the of the scene but what they're talking yeah, about really she's gonna stay with it you know what i yeah. haven't thought really thought of that either like you know she mentions how they're gonna you know she's gonna stay out of pity and you know mm-hmm. got to leave yeah. but yeah you're right like he would be he is smart enough to know like well, yeah, you she know, mentions she specifically mentions you were there the that friendship night. thing yeah absolutely she relates that right then and got and griffith he has a reaction shot when he hears that she, she said, you remember that night on outside Primrose Hall and then Griffith's eyes like shot light up. Like he hurt, he realizes that they then knew that he was, you know, talking about what makes a friend and equal. And that's what makes him set out. I thought that was fascinating. Not put that connection together myself. Well, just, I don't you know. think it's uh, specifically what makes him, you know, set out like that. I mean, it's that, the whole thing. Yeah, but yeah. That's another part of it I hadn't put, you know, as much thought into until uh, Walter brought it up just now. Which, so to me, it's like this is a big reveal. <laughs> oh, go look at the volume. It's like one. It's one panel away yeah. from her saying it. So then he's, yeah. he looks surprised. So, um, into the eclipse. Uh, while we're on the subject of things I didn't quite put together, uh, you know, they go through the entire scene of Ubik and Conrad. Revealing uh, his conscious mind or his past, and basically Void gives him the choice. And obviously, the whole scene is about him being warmed up to a certain choice. But the but Void, Void says something interesting, and he says, uh, "Basically, you can rest in the ruins of a dream." He says, "That's the cruel grace of the God born of man." Uh, obviously, it's referring to the idea of evil, but what is the cruel grace? And he doesn't spell it out exactly because he kind of leads into it. But he's talking about you have the choice to not follow your path. And that's that's built into the way causality functions is, sure, this path has been laid before you, but you have to be the one to take it. And you're, you're given the option not to take it. Yeah. The cruel grace is having to live with yourself, having not chosen the path that destiny had laid for you. That the line is always a lot of voice liner is super enigmatic and almost, um, uh, yeah, I mean, enigmatic. You don't quite understand them. Uh, the full scope of them. And of course, after that, he has this yeah. uh, destiny being make things of children, et cetera, et cetera. My favorite line in the series almost. 
What's but, what's interesting to me about Void in this scene mm-hmm. is that he's almost sympathetic. I mean, or like compared to the other uh, Godhead, yeah. obviously Slan is you know sort of sinisterly cackling and mocking. And and uh, Conrad and Ubik, they're sort of portrayed as tricksters. Yeah, they're they're teasing him into this. Yeah, thing, yeah, they're like they're like fooling him, and it's like Void who almost sort of cuts through the crap and just like lay, you know lays it out for him, like you know it speaks to him, you know. If this still burns in your in your heart, then take it. Yeah. Um, I think they all have a role to play, you know. To like, you know, there's a good cop, the bad cop, and like the ones making fun of him. So I think it's a it's a it's teamwork. Even uh, even in a circumstance like this, they're all you know playing their roles as they as they see fit, of course. But uh, I think it, it works towards the same thing in the end, you know. Yeah. The um. That scene, I mean, someone, someone asked us in the questions, uh, what our favorite moment in Berserk was. I think this is still my favorite moment in the series is when Griffith finally makes his choice. And there's like three or four pages of him, uh, thinking about guts and then it has the full on frontal face. This is amazing. It still fills me with emotion whenever I read that. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it fills me with a great feeling of triumph whenever I read it. I mean, no, wait. But, um, <laughs> His final look at Guts is not one like, hey, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, it's a, speaking of enigmatic, it's a very strange, again, it's like that bittersweet, you know, yeah. sort of yeah. feeling. You know, it's almost like a, hey, we're doing it, you know, it's going to, it's going to happen, except, you know, you're going to get eaten as part of the process. Yeah. You know, it's almost like, yeah, he doesn't, you know, it isn't anything like evil. It's just like, yeah, this is, this is yeah. happening. This is what has to happen. It's so awesome that he Mira Mira could have chosen a variety of expressions on his face, and he chose one that's endearing. You know, it's basically uh, saying goodbye, old friend. Is the it's, way. It's, it's also because uh, of how they got him to sacrifice. You know, I mean, if you look, for example, at what God feels for Griffiths, he's enraged. You know, he wants revenge, but Griffiths. All the while, that's not how they baited him. They baited him with the dream, like all those deaths, all those people who died, you know, the kid who died, to make it worth something, to make it not be in vain. He has to reach his dream. So it's all for the dream. So in the end, you know, as he looks upon God, it's like, well, you know, it's also for the dream. So yeah. I, I think and- I think he doesn't even have any, you know, bad feelings about it. He's like, yeah, sure, you served me well, goodbye. And, you know, Guts also endorsed that message. So it's almost like, you know, like I'm doing, you know, I'm doing what you said, you know. <laughs> you know, last last episode I had, you know, rebuked that saying that, you know, they Conrad and Ubik tricked him into doing this. But actually the placement of Guts' line when he says, this is the path to your dream, isn't it? Yeah, Guts didn't necessarily mean killing your friends with the yeah. path to your dream. Yeah. They, they are little, like, it's they, out of context. A little out of context yeah. there. Was, they do fucking trick him. <laughs> unfair. <laughs> you know, and it's yeah, the they, same they way. Up for, for Void's hard sell. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's it's the same way for the count as well, you know. When uh, Ubik shows Theresia what happened with her mother and such, you know, I mean, you can you can tell the guys just doing things so that people will make the choices they want him, they want them, yeah. them to, you it, know. So they tried to shame him into, you know, get, you know, because he couldn't stand, you know, her knowing that and seeing him like that, like, you know, yeah. yeah. So just kill her, you know, and it'll yeah. all be over. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's and he does the same thing. Yeah, and in that regard, I, I'd like to see uh, Gus and Ubik meet, you know. I mean, I've said so before, but I think it would be very interesting because 
obviously, what's the first thing Ubik's going to do is to fucking conjure up the beast of yeah, darkness. Absolutely. And it's going to be a fucking shit fest. I mean, it's going to be very interesting. Actually, yeah. It could be I'm really... so surreal. Yeah. It could basically be guts, you know, what, you know, like having a battle inside his own psyche. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. I, I pretty much think he's going mind. to be guts, guts fighting the beast, you know, like, you know, fighting himself, he, he, fighting insani- insanity, you know, in short. So mm-hmm. yeah, it will be very interesting. And then, of course, I mean, I guess Ubik could just, you know, snap his finger and, you know, like make him explode or something like that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's all I had written for this section of Griffith because it kind of had a turning point here with what we can say about him, you know, uh, by volume 22, he's back and he basically just reiterates what Azil just said. You know, it's not that he bears ill will towards guts. It's more that, you know, he, that's the path to his dream that he won't betray it. That's what he said yeah. when Gut says, why are you here, basically? That being said, I think uh, even as Femto, who's supposed to be above all this stuff, I think he's a bit petty with Guts, you know? Like, telling him, oh, yeah, you're meaningless, you're nothing. You know, I always found it a bit, you know, it, it's too cruel to be just somebody who doesn't care. So I think, in a way, despite even not taking the, the, the boy into account and all that stuff, I think Griffiths still, you know, cares in a way. I mean, in the same way that he's purposely letting Guts live, like he just, uh, let's say, let him go, uh, you know, when he could have killed him. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think, I think it's just out of cruelty. Honestly, I think it's just, you know, like he doesn't care, uh, you know, wanting revenge or such a thing. But, yeah, he just uh, maybe just amuses him, you know, to be cruel. But I think, yeah, it's something deliberate. Well, and yeah, it, it, when his first act as a god hand is to rape Casca in front of Guts and play, yeah. you know, in, with her in front of Guts, toying her and everything. Is, so Yeah, which is, of course, a revenge on both of them, like sure. on her because he's yeah. raping her and on him because he's powerless to stop him from raping her. So... Like, they betrayed him, you know, together, and he's now taking revenge on both of them, you know, at once. So, with his newfound power. One of the last questions I had on the notes, it's kind of an open-ended thing, was what's left of Griffith in terms of the character we once knew? And where does Griffith end and Femto begin? We're kind of already in the heart of this discussion right now. But how how much of Femto is Griffith? And how much of Griffith is Femto? Well, you know, I think it's very, I mean, it's, it's impossible to say exactly, but yeah, Femto was born from Griffiths, so obviously they share a lot of traits, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's more like Griffiths, something was lost in the transition from Griffiths to Femto rather than something was gained. You know, of course he gained power and, you know, insight into the world and stuff like that, but I think he lost, you know, everything that was good in him. In short, you know, like now he can pretend, you know, he can, you know, play and such a thing. But at the core, he's just, you know, cold and uh, he's what he aspired to be, a cold machine who just, you know, walks towards his ambition and, yeah, doesn't feel much for people or stuff like that. I, I we, think he's... We yeah. see we see glimpses of Femto throughout the Golden Age uh, and, and aspects of Griffith's personality. And now it's just fully realized, you know, uh, yeah. those, those, those cruel and cold aspects of his personality have become... That person, yeah, that's how I've What's seen interesting it. Interesting is uh, when you said you know something lost instead of something gained. It did make me. It made me think of the alternative. Like if it is his, you know, basically like his soul or whatever, you know, that form that met idea was. 
yeah. just sort of wrapped up in that evil power. Like maybe maybe he didn't lose that humanity completely, but it was just it's just been tainted, you know, lost yeah. in that sense. Well, the thing is, I don't like to speak of uh, lost humanity because you know the apostles and the God hands—they are still human. I mean, yeah. What what is humanity? To me, he lost you know good. Like you know, he lost uh, the you know ability to love people or to be nice and kind or to have empathy towards you know I don't know a dying dog in the street. Like he could look at it and just not feel anything. But of yeah. course, I think he's still human and. Uh, you know, so yeah, I don't like to speak of lost humanity because I think uh, it's all, you know, Evan Slan says it herself. It's all very human. All of what's yeah. going there, it's it's not, and it's the same way it can be put into opposition with you know the elemental forces of nature, like the trolls, for example. They are evil, I guess, in between quotation marks, you know. But uh, they are still beasts, you know. They are evil, like uh, a pack of hyenas will be when they are attacking, uh, you know, a lamb or something like that. I'm I don't know that uh, that troll party in the yeah. game. It seemed pretty human in some aspects, like human. Yeah, animal. of course. Yeah, of course. But what I'm, yeah, what I mean is that they are not, they are not really, you know, they don't have higher intellectual functions. So yeah. they're just beasts to me. And. Uh, well, Meanwhile, apostles are still very human. Yeah, well, that's actually what I was getting at, in the, is that, you know, I still think, you know, even the evil of apostles and even, you know, maybe even Femto and Godhead, like, there's still, it's still a human evil. There's still, yeah, you know, oh, yeah. there's still humanity yeah. in it. It's just the dark side of that. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. I mean, I guess what we're, you know, we discuss Femto and, you know, the relation to Griffith is sort of the limit, you know, where one ends and the other begins. And it's sort of what, what are the limitations of his character now? Right. Like, does he have, you know, know, he he has obviously the capacity to act good within him, but is that just an act? You know, does he, does he actually feel that way or, you know, can he, or is it just all, you know, a face and a front? Yeah. You know, I like actually, I think what's great is when you see Femto, I mean, like, for example, in volume 34, his face doesn't really, I mean, he barely even ever shows any emotion. He's, it's mostly yeah. like like a mask, you know. I mean, he, I guess he's kind of you know frowning when he's speaking to the Skull Knight, but even then, it's just barely there. So, yeah, I think uh, it shows a mask of emotionlessness, which is uh, what I think Griffiths actually which is really under. Yeah, what's what's really under there under that soft, you know, nice yeah. face. Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah. The idea that it would be great, you know, to have a shot of Griffith, like I don't know, smiling and talking to someone, and they're just, you know, swooning from his charisma, and you just see like, you just see Femto like behind him, looking cold and dead, and staring at them, you know, like a hawk. <laughs> yeah, it's like that's what's that's what's really there, you know, that's what's really standing there, <laughs> you know. It would be interesting, but <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What do you what do you guys think that's well, ultimately going? Do you, you think know, that's sort of the limit of him, or is this like a? I'll make this really simple. We know Mira is a Star Wars fan. Is this like a Darth Vader situation where there's still so possibly good to be rooted out, maybe well, by the child? You know, I, I think uh, there's one thing I wanted to say is that since we've uh, since you know uh, Griffiths became Femto, even after Femto was incarnated, we haven't really been in Griffiths' head, you know, since then. Yeah. So we we've seen what he felt when he saw guts, you know, fighting, you know, uh, fighting Zod, and when Casca was there, but he was reflecting on, you know, the child and such. But we haven't really, you know, known his motivations or what he thought about other people, or something like that. So I think it shows a, a break in, uh, you know, 
between the Azad character and what he was before. And I think we often see shots of him, you know, his eyes, his face, and he's always, you know, I mean, most of the time he's very impossible, you know, he's, he's not, he's not really being affected by anything. Like right. there, there have been exceptions, but they were rare. And so, um, I think the child, the boy is, uh, what can, uh, I mean, play a role in, in that regard. Like, yeah, humanize him. Make him do some things he wouldn't do, but I think Griffith himself, separate from the boy, no, I think he's, he doesn't have any good left in him. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, would the boy make him do good things, but it's really just the boy doing them, or would the boy, like, is it like, is the boy like a good corruption? Like, that's well, sort of, you know, like a, a, like a crack. Well, that origi- will allow, you know, him to do good things. Originally, I would have said, uh, like, if we were just at volume 22, I would say, yeah, the boy, there are remnants, you know, that uh, are corrupting him towards good. But now then there's uh, Moonlight Boy and such. I think the two are separate entities. Like, it's like a parasite in a way. Like, the boy is a parasite. So, you know, maybe Femto will be willing to do something. And then he can't because the boy is interfering or something like that. I think it's what happened uh, pretty much in Volume 22. Like, you know... Griffiths was there overlooking, you know, uh, guts and sort you know, fighting. Yeah. Casca was in danger and the kid, you know, right away came and saved her. And Griffiths was like, well, what, what yeah. did I do? And later so he was thinking I, about it, like, why did I do that? You know? Yeah. So I, I think he's going to be, uh, pretty much in that same vein and, uh, maybe even an inner fight between, uh, Femto and, and the boy. I mean, that, that might be interesting, but I think What's, most of uh, the- I was just going to say, I think most of the time, uh, Femto is going to be in charge. And, uh, yeah, maybe only during the full moon or something like that. Well, what th- I thought was interesting. Oh, sorry. No, no, you, you go ahead. Well, I, this might be a little bit of a digression, but w- w- you mentioned how we haven't really been in his head since he came back. And the only uh, exception to that is when he's thinking about the boy. And yeah. a little bit more of that whole scene, that's sort of where he's being, you know, himself. He's being honest with guts, you know, before he talks to Ganeshka and, Skull Knight is where he's, you know, he's speaking very frankly about everything. And, you know, it's sort of, you know, it's not the, he's not playing the hero yeah. or anything like that. And it's interesting, you know, it's interesting that he introduces himself to, you know, to Guts as if this is the first time they're seeing each other since, uh, wow. the eclipse. Even though, yeah. you know, obviously him and Femto, you know, and like that's when yeah. Femto was especially, you know, verbally cruel to him. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I chalked that up mostly to just that was, you know, so many volumes ago and it was almost a different characterization of Femto. But uh mm-hmm. I don't know, what do you guys think of that? Like the fact that he like sort of he sort of makes a designation like we're oh we're seeing each other, you know, for the first time where it like, you know, he doesn't even he's not counting like when he saw him as Femto. Well, I'm not I'm not quite sure what you're asking, sorry. I'll try to explain. The Obviously, after the eclipse, you know, Guts and, you know, Femto had a confrontation in Volume 3. But then in Volume uh, 22, 22, like, Griffith acts like this is the first time they've seen each other. Well, he just, he's, similar to all the scenes with Griffith now that he's incarnated is, or Femto's incarnated, he doesn't say much. You know, he he, he leaves most of it to other people. He basically just says, Guts asks why you're here, and Griffith says, I came here to see if I still felt anything with this new body. That's pretty much it. You know, he's not, he doesn't, he doesn't have a big opening to say, so you're still crawling around like a bug, huh? You know, (laughs) he just kind of says, you know, he answers his question and confirmed he's trying to make his exit. And whenever Zod, you know, defends him. 
That's pretty much the scene, right? Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't. I was just wondering it's... if you guys have any, like, yeah, if you have any other thoughts on it, if that's it, or what do you think, as? Well, you know, uh, I wasn't really listening to what you just talked about. <laughs> I've, I've grinded the podcast to a halt. We can, <laughs> we can just move on. Well, talking uh, about talking about the kid uh, and Griffith. There was one other point I wanted to make was things things have changed since the kid was first introduced as, as part of Griffith. You know, we've seen him materialize and visit his parents. Um, but one thing, does the, do you think the kid knows, you know, he's a part of Griffith? Does he know yeah. the history? Does he know that Griffith's the reason that his family's ruined, basically? The kid's trying to reunite his family. No, I his think mom he does. And his dad. Yeah, I'm saying, do you think he's aware of that circumstance, or is he kind of aloof and just going off of instinct to find his parents? You know, how uh, of his circumstances? I, I, I think he knows. I think he knows. He must share some of, uh, you know, Femto's knowledge or his mm-hmm. consciousness, something like that. I think, in the same way that uh, he's like a parasite for, you know, Femto and such, you know, I mean, I think it's a give-give uh, relationship. So, he he's taken from, uh, you know, Femto when uh, Femto was incarnated, and in the same way, he can parasite him, but he also take from him. So I think it's a bit, uh, yeah, yeah. I guess the reason I said that is it kind of helps us understand the kid's motivations or where his motivations might be moving forward if he realizes that Griffith's the sole reason that his family was ruined, basically. And I, I wonder if that'll come into play later on. I wonder well, if it's uh, – because I, I kind of – I agree with Az, but I also wonder if it like – what you're saying matters to him. Like if it's something like where he sort of exists and he has his whole life on this, on this different level. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not, he's never been like a normal kid. He's always been like, first he's a demon and now he's whatever he is. Yeah. So I wonder if all that is sort of below him. Like if he doesn't, you know, if he doesn't even worry about that and he's a child at the same time. Well, then why would he seek out his parents if it didn't matter to him? Well, no, but I mean, that's just like parental, you know, all, you know, as Skull Knight said, all yeah. children, you know, care about their parents and seek yeah. them out. But I don't know if it's going to become a factor where it's like he's going to try to sabotage Griffith or if he has any like anger towards him or if it's just if, or if he's sort of if he's one with him, if he just sort of recognizes like, well, this is just the way things are. And, you know, I don't know if he even thinks about, you know, Griffith necessarily. Yeah, I agree. With he, that. Might be, I, he might be aloof in running on instinct on that sense, where it's like okay. he doesn't even, he's not concerned with that. Yeah. He, he's a kid, so I think what matters to him, like I'm not sure he has time to really, you know, elaborately think about, oh, Griffith did that and such, and it's because of this and that. He just, when he can, he goes to see his parents and that's about it. I yeah. think... uh yeah, he he probably has ulterior motivations, but I think his main goal is just to be with his parents. Yeah, but well, like I mean, a he, child, he might be like, you know, things are things just are the way they are. Maybe like he doesn't even think of like the cause and effect of Griffith. You know, I don't know. Every time, every time he leaves his parents, he looks back on them, and then leaves. Is that big? He has that weird yeah. stare. He has the Griffith. Almost, uh, it's stare. almost like a, it's almost like a custody battle. Like he has to go back to his <laughs> other parents now. You he has know. To go back. Griffith for the week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't. I didn't have much more, and I, I, you know, we had planned to do a part three for Griffith, but man, I don't know what the hell else we could talk about for a part three, guys. No, we, we can talk about hmm? recap. Well, I mean, just touch on things again, and you know, whatever. I guess whatever we leave unsaid, I'm sure we'll think of more. Oh, okay. Well, I, I'm sure we can find some some 
you know, chinks in the armor we missed, but I'm just saying on, on the whole, as far as a look at the, on the character, you know, per volume, it seems like we've covered all the bases. So yeah, we'll, we'll leave, yeah, of we'll leave discussion open for next time, but for now, I think we're done. Yeah. Well, there's also the fact that Griffith is not like, you know, I mean, we can, we can do a lot of stuff on guts, but Griffith remains just the antagonist or oh, the series doesn't, you know, cover him as, as in depth as a, Actually, I, mean, I was thinking about that. You know, doing a Guts podcast, it seems redundant. It's like, yeah, you, you guys understand Guts, right? I mean, you, you get them, right? It's not, I don't think as much well, as thing is, do, really. You know, Guts, Berserk is the story of Guts. So, sure. You know, whenever we talk about Berserk, we talk about Guts. I mean, this is about Griffiths, but we spent half the time talking about Guts. And sure. no matter what we do, even doing something about Skull Knight, we talk about Guts. We can do anything, we'll just end up talking about Guts. Because whenever we talk about Berserk, that's all there is to talk about. He's a, yeah, I mean, that's his story, so, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll move on to non-Berserk stuff. Let's see what we got. Oh, yeah. Me and Azil played uh, Double Dragon 2 and Streets of Rage 2. We did this yeah. last time. We just forgot to talk about it on the show. So Streets of Rage 2 is a game I grew up on. Like, well, I mean, kind of all, all games I grew up on. But one of my favorite Genesis games, he used to play with my dad. Uh, it was the only game I could really get him to play, and he really enjoyed it. Pretty freaking awesome game. I never really got into Double Dragon 2. I mean, I played it, you know, of course. But I could never get into the control scheme where... You know, it's like uh, contextual whether you're going to do a back kick or a front punch. I could never get into that as a kid, but, you know, I really enjoyed it playing with a zeal. It's actually a really, really well-designed game. It's just fucking hard and ridiculous. Yeah. The controls are so finicky with how you jump, and they add, you know, moving platforms and jumping and spikes, and it's just like, come on, really? A little <laughs> overly difficult, in my opinion. You know, it's just... It's the same with uh, the early Castlevanias, you know. It's like the death pits are what makes a game hard, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. Still, it's pretty. I mean, I looked at the other versions of Double Dragon Two online. You know, I think the NES one is probably the best. It's the most yeah. stylized. It graphically makes everything's cohesive. It makes sense. It's just a really fantastic game. Yeah, it's awesome, and the ending is the best too. I mean, I wish we could have gotten there, but uh, yeah, that's that was my bad for falling to the spike pits. Ah, <laughs> oh. oh, the spike pits. It still continues in that game. You, you die yeah. so easily, you know, with a misstep. There's a level you start out and you're on the, like the beach, basically the ocean. And I was like, you know, edging too close to the the bottom of the screen, and it was just like <laughs> waves. And I figured, you know, there's no way it's gonna make me fall. Oh, yeah, I fell in the ocean. I'm dead. <laughs> Great. It's like a little you three. Can't, you can't stuff. have that kind of, you know, sort of imagination when you're yeah. playing those games, because like, you've got that you've got that curiosity. Yeah, <laughs> and it, yeah. it'll get you every time. And the, the Streets of Rage 2 is funny because the the built-in thing is you attack your friends like by default. There's no way around that, as far as I know. And so and there's so much crap happening on screen. You have to end up laning each other. Like you know, I'll take the top half, you get the lower half. But then there's an apple on the screen, and you're both going to go for the apple. <laughs> and then an enemy walks up, and you end up you know hitting both guys. And I think half the time, half my lives are probably spent at a zeal. You doing blazes forward, forward, <laughs> <laughs> and vice versa. I probably hit him a couple times too. So anyway, yeah, just a couple are, of times. These are great games, and it's too bad that the whole genre is pretty much gone. I mean, uh, it's Castle Crashers, which is the closest thing to uh, you know a remake for that. But uh, I don't know; it's not the same. It's too bad. But um, I've also been playing um, Hotline Miami. I actually beat that the other night. Uh, it's 
the perspective is GTA one, you know, the overhead, overhead views, but you play it like Hitman where there are rooms of guys you're going to take out and you want trying to be as quiet as possible, but it's like Hitman on crack where everything's super quick. Uh, it's really a fantastic game and it's all set in the 1980s. It's a really highly stylized game. If you've ever sat outside a door in Hitman trying to plan out how you're going to approach, you know, shooting three guys or attacking three guys without anybody taking notice, that's the whole game of Hotline Miami. Every room is like that. You're trying, I'm trying to plan out how you're going to take out this room of guys, uh, efficiently. So it's really yeah, fun. It seems, it seems nice, but, uh, what, what platform is it on? Steam, I imagine? PC. Yeah, okay. So I, I got it for six bucks. I think it's eight now. It's worth it. Uh, it's, only, it's it's pretty short. I think it's like four or five hours, but it's worth it. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe if it's five bucks, yeah, I'll get it. Because sure. it's on nice. And I, I always like, you know, the old uh, original GTA, you know, top view, top down view. It was really fun. So I'm always fond of it. Very similar to that. Like the first, the aesthetic, it reminds me of GTA. Uh, the perspective, obviously, and the, the, the atmosphere and the tone of the game is also very like the first GTA. Uh, I'm playing another game, but I don't really want to keep talking. So are you guys playing anything? Well, I was well, going to bring up that, uh, sorry, Az, I'm jumping no. in. <laughs> no, but no, 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 no. We, you uh, can go, to... you can go ahead because I know before you're we... going to be talking about Diablo three. So <laughs> no, no, I, I will. I will have the weekly Diablo three report uh, later, but <laughs> right now I just wanted to bring up, you reminded me when we used to play uh Mame online Oh yeah, and we'd play like baseball stars too. And we got pretty good at it. We'd have these games where it would be like 54 home runs to, you know, 45 you know, or something ridiculous like that. That's you a, just get a home run basically every time. It's still my favorite sports game. I think He's got good eyes. <laughs> what was that guy's? What was that character's name? It was something like Mike Beard or something. Oh, Mike! Yeah, hello, hello, baseball fans. Welcome. It's me, Michael Beard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, just over the top. Good stuff. Anyway, we also played Aliens vs Predator on the arcade. That was a good beat 'em up. Oh yeah. That was uh, that was interesting. I feel like uh, yeah, Mame. Uh, I don't know. Haven't played that in a while. Yeah, well, a lot of those games, all of the more popular games on Mame, got ported to Xbox Live. Ah, uh, uh, TMNT Arcade, Simpsons Arcade, all those types of like. Now, are you talking about the original TMT Arcade or that weird remake? Like, no, the original. The original got ported. I'm pretty sure to mm. Xbox. I mean, whenever I was in college, um. You know, I, I used to show off Mame to people in the dorms. People were blown away that you could play four player Simpsons Arcade on a computer. That was like a revolution. <laughs> like, this is like two, yeah, or two, or this, like X Men Arcade. Yeah, that was like oh my god, you know. So that was hugely popular in the dorms. But uh, it's like hey, I downloaded your childhood, you know, and they're like oh my god, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Like that's how I felt about it because X Men Arcade was always a game I wanted to see ported, like to you know, a home system and never did. Yeah. It was always, there were always a lot of sort of like representative X-Men beat em ups, but none of them were really that good. Welcome to die. <laughs> they didn't have that high level of quality throughout. That, that line actually, that welcome to die, that's in border, Borderlands too. One of the enemies says it whenever he's running at you. <laughs> Random reference. Uh, what else is happening? I've been talking most of the time. As what did you have to say? Uh, no, nothing. Just that I haven't that much time to play, so 
I haven't played Smite in a while, and um, yeah, I've been playing games on my phone, <laughs> which doesn't really count as games, you know. Something called Crimson Dragon, which is, uh, yeah, I guess it's alright. It's uh, shut them up, and uh, there's some terrible uh, game. Yeah, that actually uh, it's played from a top-down view called Extraction. I think it's by. Uh, by Electronic Arts, and it's yeah, it's it's pretty bad. I mean, it's alright when you're in the train and just want to, you know, pass time. But yeah, it hardly even counts as a game to me. I, I want to play the playing Secret of Mana on your phone. Yeah, yeah, no, on the phone, no way. That's not a good way to experience it. Actually, I'd like to play the Dark Souls, uh, you know, DLC, but my Xbox still isn't plugged in, so mm. I can't for now. That's too bad. Yep. You know, I, I've, I did, I'm, I'm starting to replay Dark Souls again. I started two nights ago. And uh, second playthrough makes that game kind of like, too easy. Like a lot of times, you know, I beat Sif in the first go. And it took me like 30 times before that or something like that. So, yeah. so some things are super easy. But I got careless last night and like a, a single dude with a torch killed me, which is just sad, you know. <laughs> A game, a game still punishes you for being careless, even if you are super high level, you know. So, it's a fun game still. I don't know. I don't, I don't exactly know why I'm still playing it. I'm just kind of compelled to keep on. But I'm still waiting for a Steam deal on it. They, that's like the one game they will not offer a discount on. Well, right now, today, it's twenty dollars on Amazon, and you can. I'm pretty sure you can import the Steam. Mm. That's half off. Uh, that is pretty. Yeah, because it's in thirty nine on. Uh... Yeah, it's, I posted it in the digital deals thread. I'm pretty sure. The link. Let me see. I might not have seen that yet. Um, new Bond movies coming out next week. I really didn't like the last movie, but I will totally go see this, even if it gets poor reviews, because I like I like Daniel Craig as Bond. So, <laughs> kind of excited. I'm not really excited. I will go see it though. I, I have high hopes. Honestly, uh, it it doesn't look too bad, but. I'm not very interested. I think, uh, I mean, I, I didn't mind Casino Royale. I didn't see the other, other movie, Quantum of Solace. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't think, uh, these movies don't really feel like James Bond movies to me. They're like action movies, you know, like, you know, the Bourne Supremacy or some stuff like that. So, yeah, while I don't mind them, I'm not, you know, you know, very eager to go watch them or anything like that. So I hope it's good. And if, if it is, I guess I'll watch it. But, I didn't watch uh, Mission Impossible 4, and uh, in the same way, I'm, I'm not, you know, in a hurry to watch this. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen MI4 yet. Actually, I saw MI3 just like maybe two or three months ago. I didn't think it was that great. Everyone said it was really good. It's like the J.J. Abrams version of Mission Impossible. Is it a oh, film with oh. Seymour Hoffman in it? Yes. I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was that great, though. I don't know. I never even saw the last Bond movie. I just I saw Casino Royale and thought it was great, but I and I heard the last one sucked. I can actually buy it for five dollars at Big Lots, like a special edition DVD of it that I saw the other day. Not worth five dollars, Quantum of Solace. It's pretty bad, pretty blah movie. Hmm. How did they How did they blow it? Like, uh, what was wrong with it exactly? Let's see. Um, the scenario itself is one of the stupidest, like you know, heists. They're trying to steal water. That's like the big. That's always a danger <laughs> with the Bond movies. Just really fucking dumb. First of all, like it, uh, it doesn't. You know how they have that lead-in with Casino Royale with his uh, girlfriend basically betraying him in the end, and there's a continuation of that plot in part two. And it, 
kind of goes nowhere. Uh, any emotional kind of falls res- flat. Yeah, any emotional resonance you felt with it going into this movie, I think stomps it out with a hammer. It's just a little too angsty. Uh, it didn't do anything for me. Uh, and uh, yeah, okay, I can see. It might it might actually make the it might make Casino Royale worse rather than improve no, no. upon things. It, make, it makes Casino Royale even better than I had first thought. Because, <laughs> you know, similar to like how the Berserk anime is going to look great after this, you know, trilogy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but there's this opening sequence where I remember being bored, and it was like the fact that there's super fast cars and machine guns. I'm like, man, I'm fucking. That's all I remember is impressions like that. We'll move on to um, member questions. We have quite a few. If we don't get through them all, eh, we'll get to them next time. Um, Incantation asks, "How many times have you reread the manga or gone back and reread specific volumes?" Uh, I find rereads extremely worthwhile. I do it a lot. Um, I mean, I just recently went through nine through 12 last night. Um, and I've, I, as you saw on the podcast, I found a lot of things I didn't quite put together myself. So I do that all the time. I mean, I, I don't know as far as from volume one to current, I don't think I've ever done that before. I don't think I've ever sat down and read from one to the thing, the whole thing. It's, I mean, I, I've, I've experienced the series since the very beginning Piecemeal, uh, it's just just been the way I've processed it. So, but I, I'm constantly re- rereading volumes. There's almost always a stack of volumes on my desk. It's like my signature desk thing. I have like five or six volumes. I have six over here currently. So I'm always going through older stuff. Honestly, I have no fucking idea. I mean, I I, I don't reread the manga much. I mean, honestly, not much. But uh, how could I know? I mean, I've been reading it for. Over 10 years now, so who am I to expect, you know, to, to tell you something like that? I have no idea. Well, I, uh, I reread it in the same style that, uh, Walter does. I don't think I've ever sat down and maybe, actually, I mean, I guess I did with Dark Horse, basically, as those came out. Hmm. Like, I, I've read, yeah, so in that sense, I have reread it by reading the Dark Horse ones as they come out again. That's but true. usually, if, uh, yeah, usually if I reread it, It'll be, you know, I'll just, I'll go on a jag on like some specific part, you know, where I'm just like, oh, I want to reread this and then I'll jump around and, you know, do it that way. So there's, there's probably like scenes that like, you know, there's parts where I, you know, I know them like the back of my hand and can like remember all the dialogue off the top of my head. And there's probably other parts that are more neglected just because of that. Yeah, that's why I like to go back and reread volumes that I maybe I didn't pay as much attention to, like 25. I don't think I don't think I've read that particular volume probably more than like three or four times tops. Uh, whereas volume twenty four, probably thirty or forty. I don't know. I'm making up a number here. A lot. You know? Yeah. The next question: Is there a way you mark your volumes with regards to translations? This sounds like an extremely laborious process. I don't think anybody. Does. I mean, you just. Well, yeah, I keep the DH ones in the garbage. That's how I. <laughs> that's how I mark it. It's different from my SK translation. The thing is, I don't own the Dark Horse volumes, so I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Dark Horse ones are great for native English speakers that don't have you know, uh, printed out translations or anything, I guess. But they're not the definitive translation. So to get the best translation, you kind of have to have a working knowledge of the things that we've translated and what Dark Horse has. I mean, I, I've said it before. I think Dark Horse is work for the vast majority of the series, but there are key scenes where they completely flub lines or they don't get the point of the line until they'll interpret it the wrong way. To be honest though, 
for the little I've seen of Dark Horse, I don't think they work for most of the series. I think most of the time it's just mediocre. I mean, I don't think it's ever really good. That's because your perception of Dark Horse are, are the hilarious choice bits that I send you. I send you the worst of the worst as examples of Dark Horse. I'm not sure. I, I remember once I think I, I saw some you no know, longer excerpt and uh, it was still, you know, pretty bad. But okay, I'll take your word for it. I mean, I, well... <laughs> Through last night, I took two or three pictures I meant to send you today that were just really hilariously. <laughs> I mean, it's been, right. But, uh, I mean, speaking of which, it's not super, you know, common for them to completely mess up things, but they do tend to get like the hugely, huge gravity situations. They tend to mess those up because they're, they're very important. Here we go. I have the scene from volume 11 when, uh, Guts realizes that the black dog knights are being driven by fear and the, the text says, it's fear. They're being driven on by a friggin' fear. Friggin'. Yeah. Friggin'. Friggin' friggin'. They're taking, you know, a little too much, you know, uh, what's the word? License with what they can do with it. It's just like, I don't think Guts would say friggin', but, you know, whatever. Being picky. Moving on. I mean, it gets, that one at least gets sort of like the, uh, the point across. I mean, some of them it's just, it's misleading, you know, and unclear. Sure. And good, but, Gus, uh, Gus tend- I, I was kidding about putting them in the garbage, by the way. They're on my ship. So. Say God damn it a lot. Like it's one scene where he's saying, damn it, God damn it, God damn it. <laughs> over, over and over. But, uh, moving on. Grail asks, describe the contents of your ultimate sandwich. To me, it's like a roast beef. A roast beef provolone, probably. Um, ultimate sandwich? I don't know. I'm sandwich when I have all the materials at, at hand. But the trouble is like, you go out and get quality materials at the, at the supermarket and you come back and you spent like $16, you know, and you're going to make probably what, three or four sandwiches? This is usually never worth it. But I, I'm making a damn good sandwich whenever I have the makings. But a roast beef probably for me. Mm. Well, let's see. Man. A roast beef is, uh, is good. Good by itself. But I'm, I'm a fan of chicken sandwiches. Ugh. I'd probably get it. <laughs> oh, like I like a ch- I'll probably like a chicken bacon ranch. Oh, that sounds good. Now you're talking. Yeah, get some, uh, you know, warm that up, toasted bread. That's almost like a burger and, at that point, though. You're talking like, you know, you can get like a Wendy's and order a chicken bacon ranch. Sandwich. Is a burger a sandwich? Here we are. Well, burgers are sandwiches. Yeah. But, uh. But practice. What about you, Az? Well, you know, I don't know. I, I eat uh, a ton of different sandwiches, but, uh, you know, since I'm French, it's a bit complicated because I guess, you know, to be something very simple, I would use uh, some type of uh, dry sausage we have here, which is called saucisson, which you guys, you know, don't know what it, you know, you don't know what it is. And with that, I like to put in some pickles, but uh, these are very specific pickles, which you also have no idea what they are. Which we call cornichon, uh, which are very small pickles, which uh, are put in vinegar, but th- they are very specific type, so they're like dwarf, you know, dwarves, very small. So yeah, I, I eat that shit up uh, pretty well, and otherwise I'll just eat some, you know, cheese uh, sandwiches with some French cheese, and usually I put some walnuts with it, and yeah, yeah, I guess uh, that's that's most of the sandwiches I eat when I'm at home. But, uh, yeah, I've eaten a, a ton of, you know, here usually in, um, bakeries, they tend to sell sandwiches. So I tend to eat that kind of shit also. I mean, 
I, I'm really, I'm not very difficult as far as sandwiches go. I'll eat mostly anything. Yeah, you had, you moved, but you had, you had a great bakery. I thought it was a great bakery. Like basically you're across the street from where you lived. No. Yeah. Well, it's just, uh, I don't know. I'd say it's average. You don't buy French standards. Sure. By French standards, but by American standards where the closest bakery is Subway. I mean, it's pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah. You know, they were pretty good. I get Subway's my chicken bacon that, uh, ranch. <laughs> Subway. Worse. Anyway. They were, they were putting subways uh, in France nowadays. God, dude. That's yeah. the- There's more subways in the world now than McDonald's. No joke. Yeah, it's the biggest chain, actually. It's become the biggest chain. Yeah. This is the place you can go to lunch, in my opinion. Like- you know, well, a lot of people uh, here seem to like it. You know, I- I've never tried it yet. I haven't had the opportunity, but I'm curious. But uh, yeah, a lot of people here seem to love it. So I don't know. I find it's actually a good compromise place for uh, like meat eaters and vegetarians. Like they can agree to go there and get what they want without anyone feeling shortchanged. It's a place, you know. You know, um, I think it was Taco Bell. No, it's KFC. They used to have those. They still have those food bowls, where they just put in like mashed potatoes, chicken, and corn and gravy, and they like stir it all up. And like, there you go, like some horse, <laughs> basically. <Ew. laughs> What Subway is. Subway is like, oh, you need some sustenance to get through your day? Here, here is some sustenance that you can put in your mouth and your body will process into proteins and get you through the day. That's what Subway is to me. Like that's the that's the experience of eating there. It's like technically it's food. It's like great. But it's not good food. It's just food to get you through the day. Like downtown Indianapolis where I live, they have so many awesome local sandwich shops, like fantastic Jewish delis. And then down the street there's Subway and there's a line out the door at Subway. It's like, fucking A, are you kidding me? People are eating at goddamn Subway when they can go eat at a genuine deli? It's just disgusting. I don't know. I think you're being hard on uh, Subway because I'm judging it by the many, many horrible fast food options in Los Angeles that are all around. And so to me it's like it's uh, it's not good but it's not bad. It's it's sort of, you know, it's in the middle there where it's bo- – because there's plenty of like lower options here for just sustenance. Where, you know, yeah, you can go to McDonald's and get, like, the McDouble for a dollar. <laughs> like, you know, you can live off that. But, uh, yeah, so I, I have a more favorable view of Subway. Next question, Berserk MJM asks, do you pack rat old stuff? Oh, yeah. Yes. I, I tend to purge for every move. I, I always lose stuff or decide to throw stuff away. Like, you know, my, I have a very... I don't have very much stuff, really. I, I like it that way. I like knowing what I have, and I don't like collecting stuff. You know, I can throw stuff away or give it to Goodwill. Um, so, no. Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> That's my answer. Yeah, I tend to can to keep a, a ton of you know a ton of shit as well. I guess just to answer the uh, the next two questions, probably the the longest standing thing I've had that's like been mine throughout my life is uh, like this. I've got the like I think a lot of people would share this either like a blanket or a bear from when they were a baby. I have this like stuffed bear. Mm, yeah, I mean I don't even I don't have it here. It's at my parents' house, but uh, yeah, just this old bear named Bear Bear, <laughs> appropriately. <laughs> and so he looks he looks now like a like an old man. He's all beat up. He's been through the washer <laughs> a million times. And so, yeah, he he looks like an ancient uh, polar bear. All my childhood stuff was redistributed amongst my nephews and cousins, so I don't even have any of that anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
the longest anything I owned. Honestly, dude, I don't have any. I don't have any clue. I mean, it's probably like my SNES, which is like now yellowed plastic, you know, from 1994. If you like <laughs> gripped it hard enough with your hand, you could break it, like you know, the plastic. Yeah, actually, that particular SNES. I uh, got uh, garden shears and ripped out the, the tabs that prevented me from playing uh, Seiken Densetsu 3 or Secret of Mana 2, uh, the Japanese version. So I modified yeah. SNES to, to play that. Uh, the oldest thing that you've inherited bought, again, I, not nothing. Uh, I'm going to let Az go last on this one. <laughs> uh, for me, it would probably be like some swords, you know, that my dad, you know, has that I've basically stolen from him. Yeah. He's got a bunch of old swords and things, and one of those will probably be it. And probably not that old, but that, yeah. that would be it. Something like that. I'm just not very interesting when it comes to this subject of keeping old stuff. Yeah, maybe old books. I might have some old, really old books, but that's that's about it. What about you, Az? Oh, um, uh, let's see. I've got a teddy bear, by the way. You oh, know, regarding the previous question. Uh, <laughs> I've also got, uh, you know... Yeah, my old teddy bear from when I was a kid. I think it's uh, somewhere in a, you know, in a dark corner of the place. Anyway, as far as the oldest thing I've inherited, I've got a ring that's from, uh, you know, someone from my family. I don't know. It's probably maybe 60 years old. And I've got some tableware that's also, I don't know, maybe 70 years old or something like that. You know, like, you know, silverware and, and shit like that. And also some, uh, some stuff in porcelain, you know, you know, some um, dishes. So yeah, I that's probably the oldest stuff I have. But you know, it's not. Uh, I mean, for people here, I've got a friend who's got uh, a mirror that's like three hundred years old or something like that. You know, she just bought it because she liked it. So yeah, that would creep me out, honestly. All those souls. I'd be afraid I'd look in it, yeah, and <laughs> see like the souls of the other people that own the mirror. Yeah. That's well, weird, you know, that's science. Next question, I guess. Uh, when you started, Branded One asks, when you started the website, did you think Berserk would be over soon or all <laughs> long series? I have a quote here I pulled from a professor <laughs> to the SKNet forum that you guys know. And it says, from Walter, from uh, January 2001, I say, in my humble opinion, the manga will go on for, well, about four or five years and thus be 30 plus volumes long. I don't think Mira could go on after that. Yeah, uh, obviously, like many things in the past, I was wrong on that on so many levels. I think we're now, well, it says four or five years. I think four times three is 12, so we're almost there. Three times what I initially had expected. You're still okay in the volumes <laughs> department. <laughs> it seems the safe number I chose, 30 plus. 100 is 30 plus. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but once it gets to 40, you think you, you know, then you'd say 40 plus. So that's where I, that's where you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah whoops so yeah I, I don't know I was wrong at the, at the time in 2001 I think Griffith had just been an incarnated so the direction of the series seemed I don't know a little more defined than it was before so I was a little too over eager to predict how it was going to end I guess yeah I mean for all we knew then like you know oh we're ready for the you know final battle oh, you, see begin, you know Let's slash him and be done with the series right and that the end but I guess, I mean, in the spirit of the question, you didn't like, I guess you started the website for the long view. You didn't think it was like just something you were doing for, you right. know, like, you know, this will be up for a month until preserved. <laughs> <laughs> like, sure. Yeah, I was sure about that. 
Didn't you plan to sell it at some point? No, never. Really? Really, never once. I would, okay. I would remember that. I had no intention of ever selling it. I, I have. Mean, heard, I, I have, can tell you, you just did it for the money. I mean, all the <laughs> <laughs> this, thing, this website just prints cash. The closest thing I would say to that is that I'd considered um, when this. I was. I'm trying to think of what happens when the series is over. What do I do with it? I've always considered just passing it off to somebody else that maybe wants to take over it. Because after the series is over, I don't personally have any stake in hanging around and talk about Berserk. After it's done publication, I'm I'm pretty much going to be moving on. That's that's the plan anyway. Unless even if Beer has another series, I doubt I'd follow it to the extent that I followed Berserk. I'd probably you know, read it from a distance, uh, you know, whenever I got a chance to, but I, I don't think I would be into it as Berserk. Yeah, you say that now. Let's see who it will be, you know, 15 years from now. When I'm 45 years old, 15 years from now, I don't think it'll be, I'll be in quite the same place, you know, as I am now. <laughs> so I, I don't think so either, but I think this is like such a, I don't know, it's been a part of your daily life, again, at least since January 2001. <laughs> I know before that, so... Uh, it was like a J- June 2000 was when I first started reading the series. Yeah. Um, next question, Apostle Bob asks... Oh, man, this is going to be a longer answer. What is this? What is it about the story of Berserk that speaks to you the most? What about the story that made it special enough to have the dedication that you do? And shooting from the hip, that's probably... Attitude and also the Skull Knight's attitude about you know never giving up in the face of adversity, always you know, finding a way, even even despite you know, overcoming odds and all that. That's probably it. But it's not really that's there's no philosophy about Berserk. It's not like I've said before. It's not that kind of series. It's, that's not it's not what keeps me glued to the series. It's not like the philosophy or the it keeps me here. It's the characters and the story itself. It's not like the the message of the story that keeps me here. Yeah, I would say that, you know, the reason, I don't think, you know, the story itself, I don't know, I think it's just, you know, in general, the fact it's great, you know, it has a, a very high quality, so the story is very well written, and it's, you know, it just keeps getting better, or you know, at least keeps on the same level of quality, so, yeah, it's as simple as that, it's really great, um, you know, personally, I consider it to be the greatest story I've, I've uh, ever read, so, yeah. Why wouldn't I keep reading it? I got it in five words. Like basically like Guts Heart and Griffith's Ambition. That's what sort of keeps me that's what got me, you know, into it and what keeps me coming back to see where it all ends up. You can just say guts and griffith. You know, yeah. Three words. <laughs> One thousand years ago, finally reveal. That's me. That'll that yeah, you know. If they, if we get like a little now, my expectations for that are so much higher after that little uh, story with uh, with Cheech. I'm just, I want like a little three or like you know five, you know, episode like backstory. Yeah, I've said on the show before that was the initial hook for me was that, and then of course it branched out into every other aspect of the series. That was the one that really made me sit up and pay attention. Anyway, that's all the questions we have. We get nailed, knocked them all out. And there's no episode planned for the next issue of Young Animal. So it's possible that we won't be back until December for uh, Berserk. But maybe it'll be shorter than that longer. We don't know. We just don't know. So until next time, we will see you guys later. Later.